0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, Canada has banned flights to India. Why are we flying around while being told to stay home? Is NACI adding more confusion or clarity to the AstraZeneca conversation? Should the Prime Minister be increasing our climate change goals when we can't hit the ones we already have? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Chris Thompson, Scott's son. I'm off school today for a PD day. These days, it's hard to tell one
0: from the other because it's the Scott Thompson home show. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! Even I heard that. As you heard yesterday, there's uh, Canada has finally, in the latter part of the day, announced that, uh, in fact, we'll be doing uh, exactly what Britain the U.K. announced uh, earlier on in the week, that we will be banning flights from India and Pakistan. And the reason being is, obviously, they're having a very tough time uh, with new variants and such, and so much so uh, that they have restricted their, they make the AstraZeneca vaccine that Canada is, has received. So uh, obviously our shipments of AstraZeneca now, as we just open it up to those uh, 40 and above uh, across the country, uh, we're going to see a shortage of it because uh, India has been selling it uh, to the highest bidder as opposed to vaccinating their own citizens. And uh, we're not going to see anything coming out of uh, India and Pakistan for the next uh, little while, and rightly so, as uh, they try to get their uh, their own pandemic under control, and they're they're seeing uh, cases uh, soar uh, in India uh, as well as other hotspots, including Brazil. Uh, we understand British Columbia, of course, leading the way with the new variants at this point and, uh, are trying very hard to, uh, to get a handle on it as well. Uh, you know, this is something that's going on pretty much, uh, right the way across the country, BC today announcing, uh, stricter measures and giving police, uh, the ability to pull people over uh, that sort of thing. Very similar to what, uh, Doug Ford got, uh, heck for, uh, last weekend. So obviously very, very concerned about these variants uh, that are coming in. We hear lots of chatter that, you know, airlines only responsible for 1% or between 1% and 2% of of the cases. But, you know, how can that possibly be when it's the new variants that are causing problems for us and all of the new variants are coming in uh, via air travel because the land borders have been closed. So, um, you know, it's we had stats just from uh, the other day, 17 flights uh, coming into Toronto alone uh, last week, had positive cases on board. And and that exposes like uh, 2,500 uh, other passengers. So, uh, you know, clearly we've got to get a handle on this um, simply because we are being affected by the third wave uh, because we don't have enough vaccine yet. Uh, we're still finding out that uh, Canada is injecting about, uh, I believe it's one3 Uh, uh, doses per day. Yeah, but 1.3... No, sorry, 1.9 million doses uh, a day, but we're capable of doing over 3 million, 3.1 million. So still, right the way across the country, mass vaccination clinics, even though we're lowering ages and such, are still only operating at about half of their capacity. So here we are at the end of April, and we're still only vaccinating half as many people As we should be or have the capability of doing. Now, we certainly hear, we certainly hear. Uh, that more will be coming in as we work towards summer and you know i think that's going to be obvious as the united states finishes vaccinating its people uh, and sends whatever it can north of the border just to get the the u.s border open uh between canada and the united states the northern united states very cranky and they want that border open as soon as possible and it's canada uh obviously with the higher infections the cdc has said we don't want to go anywhere near that at this point so you can see as joe biden Biden, uh, president of the United States, finishes up his vaccine effort, uh, y- you know, coming up uh, Memorial Day weekend promised by July 4th. Everybody's uh demasked and, and having uh, family barbecues. Then you're going to start to see stuff flow up north of the border. Uh, and the USA will save us simply because uh, they're done. So, um, yeah, we'll get it when everyone else finishes. Oddly enough, exactly like the prime minister promised in september all right uh unfortunately we got to make it through till then let's bring in michael barrett conservative mp for leeds grenville thousand islands uh rito lakes and is with us now michael thank you for the time i hope you're doing well thanks for joining you so uh, your thoughts on the government uh finally uh instituting a travel ban to india and pakistan should there be more should we be looking at other hot spots
1: yeah, look, any time uh, we're seeing that there's uh, hotspot countries, we need to make sure that we're doing the responsible thing and not importing um, the virus, and, and certainly uh, with special attention to the variants. Uh, I'll take you back to uh, last spring when the official opposition, Canada's Conservatives, was calling on the government to stop um, international flights from hotspot countries, and, and the response we got from the federal health minister at the time was that border measures do more harm than good. And this was kind of their tune uh, up until uh, things got out of hand. Now, we've seen the same thing again after we heard uh, Conservatives calling for uh, stronger measures and to stop flights uh, from any hotspot country. um, The government over the course of the last week had said and and even had their uh, Health Canada uh, officials out um, uh, early this week Saying that um, you know uh, the border's not going to stop uh, the variants from coming in. Yesterday morning, we we called on the government to finally take action to stop flights from these countries. And uh, yesterday afternoon, the government had an epiphany and said, uh, "Oh my goodness, we're we're seeing a ton of variants come in from uh, and and COVID cases coming in on these flights." So um, it's they seem to be a day late and a dollar short on this stuff. But uh, we're going to keep um, we're going to keep pressing to make sure that they're taking um taking action hopefully in advance of uh, of the next crisis i mean look here in ontario uh, we need every edge we can get
0: uh, you know obviously we all know the fatigue we all know we're in we've been in this for well over a year now various lockdowns what have you but i think canadians are having a hard time understanding why we're doing all the heavy lifting and people are flying around uh it's it like who is flying why are they flying
1: well, that's that's right. You know, in our communities uh, in Ontario, we are I'm told to stay at home, only travel for uh, leave home for uh, essential purposes, and yet there is continued air travel, and we have international air travel, and so um, the government needs to uh, needs to step up to the plate big time, and uh, and obviously the measures that they've put in place aren't working. So it's incredibly frustrating. You know, we're doing, uh, you know, we're we're, we're Following the rules, you know, uh, parts of uh, the province of Ontario have basically been locked down since the fall. And, you know, we look to the government, uh, the, the federal government, to provide the resources to make sure that, you know, these lockdowns were going to end in time. And uh, and here we are um, with, a, with a third province-wide lockdown without sufficient vaccine quantity for, for the folks who want them
0: uh is what is the downside of doing this w- w- uh, would there be any backlash from doing this other than people of course that want to fly
1: yeah i mean uh, of course we need to work with our international partners and uh and and make sure that the the reasons are clearly communicated to them on, on why we're taking this action and to make sure that it's data-driven the government talks about making data-driven decisions but uh, when um, when the rubber hits the road, that's not the case. And so, um, when we can demonstrate that there are uh, multiple flights containing multiple passengers that are bringing uh, bringing infectious diseases into our country um, repeatedly from from an individual source country, I think the case is pretty clear to to that country that we can say, look, um, we're going to have to suspend uh, to, to suspend uh, flights from there. And um, when when necessary, you know, if it's uh, for humanitarian purposes, um, the government needs to to take a look at that. But, you know, we're talking about just regular commercial air travel um, during a global pandemic. Uh, it was a year ago, the Prime Minister said for Canadians uh, to come home. Months after that, uh, at, at great expense, the Canadian taxpayer, we repatriated people from all over the world. So now is not the time for people to be traveling for business or, or leisure, um, if uh, if they expect easy passage into Canada. We we need to we need to suspend these flights.
0: Uh, we obviously know what a difficult time India is having right now, and the really sad part in all of this is India produces our AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, and unfortunately, it appears like they've been solding selling more to the highest bidder than they have. Uh, been giving to their own citizens that being said uh it's obvious that astrazeneca has come to a grinding halt because they need it to to help their own citizens rather than sell it so as we have lowered the ages uh patty high uh, last weekend said okay anybody over the age of 18 can get astrazeneca that's what health canada said which you know everybody's just shaking their head going okay let's go with that then uh, and now AstraZeneca is going to be in short supply. We're certainly seeing the uptake and how uh, inc- interest has increased as they lowered the the age group, but what happens now?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, um, my heart goes out to, to the people of India, and uh, they're experiencing a, a terrible time with with COVID-19 and uh, their hospital capacity and uh, incredible infection rates, and uh, the mortality rate is um, Is just devastating. So my heart goes out to them. And uh, and yes, their their country does produce um, produce the the vaccine. And so uh, we're going to need to look elsewhere. And you know this is a situation where. where we're going to need to, to look south of the border. Uh, you know, as you mentioned before, um, the, the, uh, the president of the United States has said that uh, they might make vaccines available to Canada. Now, AstraZeneca hasn't been deployed in the U.S., but they are sitting on quite a bit of it. So with respect to people who've received their first dose, this might open up um, the, the solution to that problem for, for folks with AstraZeneca. But it, it speaks to a bigger issue, and that's because of the scarcity of the vaccines. And uh, our government making the decision to go off-label instead of having a 28-day dosing interval between the first and second, going to four months uh, between the first and second dose, and the um, you know NACI, the, the 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 federal group has said that the only reason that's happening is because of scarcity of supply, and so. Yeah. Um, we, you look at what, what the U.K. did. They were in the exact same place Canada was with capacity and ability to make a vaccine. Um, and uh, they took the steps last year, last spring, to, uh, to get moving. And then not only did they scale up capacity, they developed their own vaccine, the AstraZeneca. So, um, so we, we're, we're behind the eight ball now. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube and, and develop our own vaccine in time to deploy to Canadians, but we are going to need to look to other countries uh, and, and, you know, lean on our neighbours in the United States. Um, and uh, and as, they, as they turn the corner on this thing, um, hopefully that will be to the benefit of Canada and other countries being able to uh, get access to those vaccines.
0: You know, obviously, we're only administering half of what we have the capability of administering, we're, and that's the right the way across the country. And at the end of the day, when we're talking about supplies and, you know, how much are we going to have or where is it coming from, at the end of the day, Michael, and I've said this months ago, it's the United States of America that's going to save our rear end in all of this as soon as they're finished. Because they'll want the U.S. Uh, Canada border open, and whenever they've got uh, going on after they've vaccinated the majority of their people or those that want one, they're going to ship it north to Canada. So by the summertime, they're going to save our rear ends, are they not?
1: Well, that's that's exactly right, and uh, and potentially sooner with with Astrazeneca, which which they're not yeah. uh, using, but with the other with the other vaccines, uh, absolutely, and so. Uh, you know, we we need to be um, really mindful and really careful about um, how we how we treat our relationships with other countries. And it's a great example. You know, uh, early on, people um, there was a lot of commentary in in, uh, in Canada about um, how we were faring better than the U.S. I, a I lot of
0: smugness up here, Michael. A lot of yeah. smugness. A lot of people looking down at the United States and seeing, oh my goodness, look at poor them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's always in bad taste to, uh, uh, to relish in the, uh, in the misfortune of others. And, uh, and now um, the chickens are really coming home to roost because we're going to, we're going to look to the United States who will be um, opening up uh, their economy. They're going to be uh, um, eliminating restrictions. They're going to be having a great Fourth of July down there, uh, maskless barbecues in the backyards. And, uh, and we're going to be, um, with hat in hand, asking them for some vaccines so we can get
0: life back to normal, hopefully in time for Thanksgiving. Are you expecting any more banning of flights, Michael?
1: Well, I, I think that any time that there's a there's a country that is identified as a hot spot, and this is information that's not typically coming from the government, the media is the, are, are the ones who are reporting on this information. They're they're cobbling it together. When that information is brought to light, we will certainly press the government on it. But they should be proactive. They've got the inside edge. And when there when there is um, importation of this virus from another country, we need to st- we need to stop travel. And uh, and and the answer is. Um, And the and the reason is very simple. It's a it's a public health necessity and nothing else. I appreciate their sensitivities around uh, stopping travel from other countries. It needs to be data driven and time limited um, so that we can get a handle on this thing.
0: Any idea what we're paying for this vaccine, Michael? I mean, you know, we already have more vaccine per capita than any other country. Uh, The Prime Minister talks about the large portfolio, yet uh, we can't seem to get it here, but he's buying more. Any idea what we're paying for this and how much others are?
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting because we've asked to see the contracts for the vaccines and the government has has
0: said it's largely
1: a a matter of national security, whereas other countries um, do disclose what. What they have through some access to information uh, revelations, we believe we're paying um, twice what our uh, what our you know uh, um, partner countries would be paying at eight dollars uh, at, at eight dollars um, uh, a vial, and so this is uh, an issue. If we're paying double and we're getting delivery later than everyone else, and um, the guarantees uh, aren't being met, it really raises question about what it what it looks like. Mm. Uh, what it looked like last summer, but but we know that uh, the Trudeau Liberals partnered with um, the communist China-owned CanSino uh, to um, to develop a vaccine instead of partnering with and getting the rights to uh, produce here in Canada uh, a vaccine from you know from a from a company like like Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson. So I got to cut you, you off more. there,
0: Michael. We're plumb out of time. Michael Barrett with his MP for Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands, Rideau Lakes, uh, is commenting on Canada banning flights uh, from India and Pakistan. Michael, thanks for the time. Be well.
1: Yeah, pleasure. Take care. Best of you in
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Barry as public health and preventative medicine physician and professor with. The Atlanta School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and talk about all things COVID-19 uh, as of today. And Dr. Barry Pekas with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
1: Yeah, doing well. Good afternoon.
0: So first of all, uh, Doctor, your thoughts on uh, the travel restrictions that have just been put into place or will go into place uh, or in place, I guess, as of today. And that is uh, the canceling banning of flights to India and Pakistan for the next 30 days. Your thoughts? Is this going to help?
2: Yeah, I think, well, uh, is it going to help is, is one way of looking at it, and um, is it going to prevent further harm is the other way, and I, I think it definitely is. You know, we don't know enough about what's going on in India with the double mutation strain, um, and, and we just simply, we're having a hard enough time in Ontario right now, we don't need to add that to the mix, so it is a very blunt tool, but I think it is appropriate.
0: Uh, we certainly know that the variants come from outside. This is the, the major uh, problem that we're facing right the way across the country, B.C. In, in similar situation uh, with the variants. Should we have done this earlier?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's, there's Well, exactly this, I, I, I can't say 100%, but there's no question that when we were you know, at a much lower case count um, and, and there was less community transmission of the variant that was the time to have made, done a much better job at our borders you know there are there are a couple of things the federal government is responsible for one is is vaccine procurement and you know I, I really don't think they could have done any better given the situation but that's been an issue and the other thing is borders and I think right since the beginning of March we could have done a better job of securing our borders from COVID.
0: It just seems odd that you know everybody's fatigued and everybody's upset that you know you're getting locked down and there's restrictions right the way across the country. Yet there's people flying around.
2: You know that is true, and that's you know that you know it makes people question it. Absolutely, you know the reality is right at this time. Um, you know we've got the British variant, uh, you know, and the Brazilian variant that are not just in the country but but traveling um, very broadly, spreading, and are the dominant strains. So. Um, you know, there's not a lot we can do about that by this point. So preventing those from entering, too late from that. But the Indian strain, you know, we have this opportunity now, and and we've taken it.
0: Uh, Many times health officials have said that, you know, it's only a very small percentage, between 1% and 2% of cases that are coming in uh, via uh, air travel and such. But if that's the case, then why would we close any border? Like, you know, if it's only a couple of percent, and again, the variants are all from outside, so the borders are close on land, they had to come from somewhere.
2: Right. So, you know, I think when we're looking at the numbers and where they have exactly come from, we just have to interpret those, you know, in the way that they're collected. So, yes, only a small percentage are coming from travel, but that's the person who traveled is that one or two percent. But when they transmit it to other members of their household and then 20 other people that we're actually able to track. Many of these we aren't. But, you know, let's say that happens. Actually, there are 20 travel related cases, not one in that situation. But only that one that actually traveled is actually counted as Similar to workplaces you know we've seen it you know varying between twenty to thirty even forty percent, but when everybody in a in a, a person who is a precarious worker or you know in a meat packing plant for example when their entire family gets sick and then a couple of their contacts only that person who worked in the workplace gets counted as a workplace related case, all those secondary cases are counted mm. as community spread so You know, if we had much better data system, we'd actually have a bit of a better better picture that early on, it's actually quite significantly from travel. And right now, a lot, even a bigger proportion than we think is from workplaces. So important to think about it in that way.
0: A lot of uh, provinces, premiers talking about interprovincial travel, travel within provinces and and have made uh, arrangements to slow that down or stop that. Should we be flying domestically within the country?
2: Um, You know, I I think in some ways we've already passed the point of no return with respect from that, but there is no question that preventing any kind of travel, and that means, you know, within the province as well, um, is going to make a difference. It makes a difference in terms of spread. It makes a difference in terms of the challenges that we have in contact tracing. Um, And so that's at this point, which is a really critical and difficult time. You know, those kinds of restrictions are absolutely warranted.
0: Your thoughts on where we are right now? We've seen some recent modeling uh, to say that, you know, we are making an impact here. What are your thoughts on where we are?
2: Yeah, I mean, we we continue to be in in a bad place. You know, the recent modeling is showing something, but the modeling back in February showed us exactly what's happening, you know, right now. Um, You know, the cases in Ontario at least do seem to be, you know, plateauing somewhat. and, And I think, that could be a bit of an artifact, meaning it may not be a real plateau and we need to you know, keep up our vigilance to make sure that doesn't continue to rise. But there are some hints of positive signs. Uh, but, but that's only in cases. And, and as we've seen, the story in the third wave is less about cases and more about hospitalization and ICU capacity. And, and that, you know, from that perspective, we're still in a really, really not good place
0: uh we're obviously seeing uh now as of last weekend the health minister patty haidu saying uh, provinces are free to use astrazeneca and anybody over 18 immediately we saw provinces start dropping the ages down to 40 uh your thoughts on how that will make an impact uh and then you know unfortunately the news that uh ontario i believe had its first case of a clotting experience for i guess now for the country your thoughts
2: that's right so you know uh, our, our big challenge now, as, as we've said for a couple of weeks, is this race between the variants and the vaccine. And if we are not able to use the vaccine in the most strategic and appropriate way because of age restrictions or, you know, various other concerns or, you know, because we don't have enough, you know, that's that's going to make the variants win by an even greater extent. So I think the, you know, using AstraZeneca and all the vaccines that we have in the, the most appropriate and targeted way that really is up to the provinces to decide is, is definitely the way to go, and um, and the fact that we've had our first case of of a or vit as it's called the vaccine induced um, thrombocytopenia is. Um, you know, expected, you know, we've had 1.1 million doses and we've had four cases across the country, which is about one in 250,000, which is, you know, the ballpark area of of what we've been seeing internationally in terms of this, um, you know, occurring. And, you know, your your chance of getting uh, COVID and getting really sick and even dying of COVID is actually significantly higher than that. Um, And so there's no question that, you know, everybody should be taking the first shot that's available to them, including the AstraZeneca vaccine.
0: Uh, obviously, uh, we, we've seen a huge uptake in uh, AstraZeneca, and this was a weird experience for me. It was a week ago today, I got my AstraZeneca, and when I was in with the pharmacist, uh, he was telling me that uh, people were canceling appointments, P- appointments weren't filling up because of the hesitancy around AstraZeneca. I was lucky enough to get mine last Friday, and then by Sunday, the age drops, And all of a sudden, there's this mad rush on uh, again. Is the hesitancy over for AstraZeneca?
2: Um, I don't think it is. I think it's, you know, this whole issue around hesitancy uh, of the COVID vaccines, um, all of them is really very different than our traditional vaccine hesitancy. And and it's just so dynamic. You know, it's, it's different in different social groups, it's different in different locations, and it's just different over time. You know, once it was opened to those who are age 40 and those people in in that age category, and I think we'll see the same thing as we go a little bit lower. Those folks, the working age population, many of which are just, you know, have not seen access to vaccine before for for them. They are very excited to get it. And then, you know, we're going to see, you know, the second half of that group that is a little more hesitant. Um, We'll see what happens as time goes on.
0: And that's exactly what the pharmacist said. Every time they drop the age, you'd see an uptake for a few days, and then it starts to level back out again. Um Are you concerned with India going through uh, the terrible time that they're going through? They've obviously stopped shipping AstraZeneca out. Uh, so they can cater more to their own population, which is which is greatly suffering right now. Are you concerned that all this excitement with AstraZeneca here in Canada is uh, we're not going to get any more in, or do you think there's a possibility of getting into that stash that the U.S. has?
2: Well, I think you know from from what I've heard, and again, you know, there's so many different levels to this. I'm at the local and provincial level more, but you know, I certainly it seems like the United States is going to be sending us quite a bit of AstraZeneca. It would be inappropriate, frankly to receive or even to ask for it from India, what they're dealing with now and what they yeah. will be dealing with. You know, we just have to have respect for the global equity and dynamics. And But, but I think we will be getting from the states. They, they do have enough vaccine uh, to share with us, and, and hopefully they will with, with both us and Mexico.
0: Are you concerned about uh, come early summer when all of us are waiting for our second shot? Or are you concerned that there might be delay in that?
2: That's certainly a possibility. You know, it's from one week to the next. It, it's hard to know. Yeah. You know, as, you, as I'm sure you know, we've had some further delays in Moderna. It seems like Pfizer is, is being quite a bit more reliable. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's hard to know what's going to happen in June, let alone what's going to happen the next three weeks. I'm not concerned about it and, and are as concerned about it because really what we're doing with these first doses is, is no matter which vaccine you're getting, you're protected to, to a great degree against hospitalization and death. And, and what we're dealing with in the third wave here is this overwhelming uh, surge of hospitalization in ICU, um, and, and the one dose will protect against that. So, you know, whether it, it happens in June or July or whenever it might be, you know, I, I think we're, we're doing the right thing by offering one dose now to everybody. And, and in fact, there is good evidence specifically around AstraZeneca, but it makes sense around all of them that, that oftentimes the longer it's delayed, the more effective it is actually going to be. So I'm not too concerned about that.
0: Uh, we are still waiting for a decision from NASI, uh National Advisory Committee on Immunization, in regard to uh, what Patty Haidu did, the federal health minister, with lowering the age down to 18. And we certainly know all the mixed messaging around of uh, uh AstraZeneca and a great deal of that has been through the conflicting information from Health Canada and and, NACI. and and we certainly do know these are two so totally separate agencies and coming at it from different angles which is great I mean that's what you want more uh, more eyes looking at all of this but unfortunately when it comes down to communication and what actually the role is here and and whether you're trying to help or create confusion uh, nasi has just been uh, uh, well I' I would say more confusing uh, is it time to update nasi is it time to uh, do you think they've added to the confusion or do you think they've helped the issue
2: well you know as you very clearly pointed out there you know these are these are different organizations different levels of government you know uh, with different mandates um, and so um, you know, it's understandable that the, you know, Health Canada approves it, right? And NAFSI figures out how it should be used. The provinces, you know, figure out how to implement it. And then the, the, you know, the the other folks who put it into arms is a different level. And so it's understandable that people be confused about it. I think NASI is an incredible uh, organization, a credible asset, and they are always updating. In fact, um, just in the past uh, two years, in 2019, um, you know, they sort of changed their mandate somewhat. They were just solely about the science, but actually they incorporated really sophisticated thinking and frameworks around ethics and around programmatic considerations. So, you know, I, I don't think NACI, um you know, is doing anything wrong. They are really great people there with a lot of experience in a variety of different areas. And and I think they're doing a good job with with data that is changing all the time. And so, you know, I I wouldn't say I would say they do need updating all the time and and they are doing that. You know, that is something that's part of NASI is continuously, you know, revisioning themselves and what they can achieve and and changing over their members. So, you know, I I wouldn't put this on NASI. I I think everyone can do a a better job of communicating and helping people understand the differences between these organizations and, and recognizing that most people are going to be somewhat confused.
0: Uh, one of the great things that has come out of this pandemic is we've seen lightning speed sharing of information uh, 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 stages of approval along the way as opposed to waiting to the very end and and flopping all this information on an approval agency we've seen people communicate all along the way on this which is greatly uh, uh, attributes to the fact that we have a vaccine or so many vaccines already is NACI operating in a silo still it, you know again i understand their mandates are different uh completely understand that uh, that's not the problem the problem is their message contradicts what everyone else is saying so how do you package that in such a way so we get the advantage of nasi but at the end of the day they don't and let's be honest they have created a tremendous amount of confusion around this whether not just them but but everybody involved so you know at the end of the day i understand they're coming at it from different angles but should they not be more mindful and get out of the silo and be aware what the other arm is doing
2: uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, not to get too political here, but I think no. NACI is doing the right thing. And, and maybe some of the other folks that have been communicating a little earlier might have not been communicating well with NASI potentially. So, you know, NACI is really not in a silo at all. Like the people who are on NACI. Um, our our public health specialists working at the local level, infectious disease folks, pediatricians, family doctors, like they are both on the science end and the practice end at various different levels. So, so I think they really do understand not only the science, but the programmatic considerations in various places across the country. So, you know, I really do trust their advice. um, And I think they're doing the right thing. I think there's no question that better coordination and communication between, you know, different levels and the messaging that's going to be going out when is critically important. And, and there was, you know, a, a bit of a miscommunication or a, a, a bit of a mess, let's call it, around this specific thing. And, and hopefully I'm looking forward to some clarity over the next couple of days. You know, we always want the clarity to come within several hours. But unfortunately, you know, including on Massey, these folks do have day jobs that involve managing the pandemic in real time. And so, you know, getting back together and actually working this out doesn't take, you know, a long time, but it does take a couple of hours or days, and it's challenging for everybody right
0: now in the middle of the pandemic. What about the relationship between NACI and Health Canada? Does that so, need, you, d- d- is this specifically what you're talking about, or or uh, is that where the communication needs to be bridged?
2: Yeah, so I, I think the, the relationship between, you know, there's Health Canada, there's the Public Health Agency of Canada, which is is the secretariat you know, does a lot of the work along with NASI. And, you know, that's really within the same government, federal government structure. But, you know, they, there certainly could be better communication uh, within there. Uh, you know, I don't have the details myself about, you know, where the challenge did occur there. And I think it's a pr- probably a, a small little either difference of opinion or lack of communication that led to a, um, you know, a much bigger, you know, uh, hoopla, let's say, um, in, in some of our understanding and our confusion. But I'm, I'm, fairly confident that they're going to be correcting that soon and 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 i think that that relationship actually has been something we've been we've been really looking at since SARS and so it's not something that sort of stays stagnant in any way you know the people on NASI, the people at FAC and the people in the government are always looking at that relationship and, and as i mentioned right at the beginning that's actually been sort of revised and revisioned in terms of their mandate even just recently
0: a uh, message for us as we head into another weekend uh, like this
2: um, I, you know, it's going to be a beautiful weekend in southern Ontario. So I, I think, you know, everybody needs to get outside, take a bit of a break, hopefully, and and just keep, you know, searching online for when you can get your appointment to get vaccinated and do that absolutely as soon as possible.
0: Well said, Dr. Barry Pekos with his public health and preventative medicine physician, professor with the Dal Atlanta School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Barry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
2: Great. Thank you. Be well. Stay-
0: you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Prime Minister has uh, increased his goals uh, on on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, trying to reduce those, uh, wanting to reduce them by another 40 to 45 percent by 2030. Uh, many are asking uh, why keep increasing these when we have yet to hit uh, one of the targets from the past. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thanks. So is it is it a good strategy to keep increasing these numbers and, and these emission targets when we don't seem to be able to reach one?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say that if we want to, uh, you know, uh, keep uh, global warming below three, uh, 3 degrees or even, you know, down to 1.5, which seems to be the goal, obviously there is a need to push these down. But... Uh, certainly, you know, Canada has uh, never met one of the targets that it's met, and so uh, I suspect a lot of Canadians say it's a bit rich for the Prime Minister, you know, to be promising more when, you know, uh, it's not clear that we'll even meet the uh, target we, we agreed to in 2015, which would have been, you know, 30% below 2015 levels, uh, to say that now we can go to 40, um, you know, is maybe a, a bit... Uh, Well, I mean, it's probably a goal that we should aim for, but uh, whether we should believe that we've actually achieved it just because we name it is, I guess, a question.
0: Do you think the Canadians think we're reaching these goals if we keep increasing them?
3: Uh, I think it sells a bit that way. I mean, let's face it, most Canadians uh, aren't, you know, watching the numbers that closely. Uh, They do see an international uh, negotiation underway. I suspect they want to see Canada play its part within, you know, what is decided there. And that's probably the level at which they see these things. And so I can imagine, from the point of view of the Prime Minister, what's most important is to be seen that uh, you're doing your part. I mean, particularly since Canada becomes to be seen as a bit of a climate villain internationally, you know, as a as a, a country that you know agrees to targets but then doesn't take consequential action to actually meet them. And so you know, in, in that context, he doesn't want to look or you know be criticised uh, at those forums. And so I could imagine. The Prime Minister, it's in his interest to to go along with uh, the direction that's going, which is, to, you know, to try and get to 40 there. Uh, you know, the question, I guess, is you've got Joe Biden in the United States saying he mm. wants to get to 50. Uh, you know, does that, uh, is that uh, problematic in terms of the Prime Minister's image game?
0: That was exactly my next question. I mean, obviously, it was easy to look good when you when down south of the border was Donald Trump. Now Biden is obviously revamping a lot of their own goals. Do we need to keep up with the United States, or does the United States have to catch up to us?
3: Uh, well, I mean, I think there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, one is to say, uh, you know, we uh, back in uh, the Kyoto uh, negotiations in the 1990s, uh, Jean Chrétien chose what was an unrealistic climate target for Canada because he wanted to do better than Bill Clinton in the states, and so mm-hmm. he came up with a stricter number uh, that surprised the provinces and really polluted, uh, you know, the goodwill in terms of actually making any uh, progress on that. So in that sense, yeah, I don't think there's a point in keeping up with the United States simply for you know the image of it, because uh, ultimately it hasn't served us well in the past. It's just in some ways made it harder to actually make progress. Um, on the other hand, uh, I mean Biden is not saying fifty percent just because you know it's a it's a big climate target. He clearly also wants to push uh, the United States as a global leader in in green and clean technologies and you know capitalize on uh, American technological prowess and their great capacity to do research. If Canada doesn't try to keep uh, you know uh, pace in that kind of context presumably we do lose out in terms of our capacity to to sustain an in investment in new and green technologies so in that context you know if canada signals that it's you know less interested or less committed to this track you know it probably does have some impact on uh, the capacity to act as a home for those new generations of technologies.
0: Will this hold Canada to account? You know, uh, obviously uh, it appears that the United States has more ground to make up because Canada has been doing this for for a bit longer, whether we're reaching the goals or not, but Biden's still talking about massive amounts of money into infrastructure, roads, uh, bridges, that sort of thing, Uh, whereas the Prime Minister's talking more about social infrastructure.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, again i think the canadian approach has been to talk and not act i mean to the extent yeah. that we've taken action it was a pretty belated adoption of a carbon tax and uh you know the hope of the prime minister really is that that you can ratchet up that tax and that will do most of the job i think we even saw with this most recent budget uh, a variety of kind of small scale initiatives in terms of retrofitting retrofitting homes and so forth but yeah not a real a real image a vision about how we could put canada onto a different long term path I mean the other part of it is that to get to you know the under a constitution the Prime Minister can go and sign on to these international deals but he doesn't have the power to put into place uh, a lot of the mechanisms which are in the hands of the provinces uh, and so we have a situation where provinces like Ontario and Quebec and Nova Scotia you know will have no trouble meeting the thirty percent target for 2030 and, and get to forty I think without you know too much work um, but, you know, Alberta and, Sask- and, and Saskatchewan are sitting, like, 58 and 71% above their 1990 uh, levels of emissions. And so, you know, Trudeau has to find a way of actually figuring out, you know, how do we share the cost of this transition? How do you reward places like Ontario, uh, Nova Scotia, and Quebec, who have been making the progress? You know, uh, how do you do that, uh, you know, without uh, too much penalty on Alberta and Saskatchewan, who are very vocal even though they're, uh, you know, pushing up uh, the costs of trying to meet these targets. So, I mean, I think that's a big part is that Trudeau uh, is unwilling or has been unable to find the key to, you know, moving forward on an aggressive agenda in a manner that doesn't put particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, on his back. Uh, I mean, he's a bit lucky that we in Ontario don't really pay attention to this because in a way we're being asked to subsidize the success of Alberta and Saskatchewan in uh, fossil fuels, by, you know, cutting back further on our own emissions to make space for them to increase theirs by increasing uh, oil sands uh, development.
0: Hmm. Uh, uh, The Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, announced his plan uh, a while ago. didn't get rid of a carbon tax, although he's not calling it a tax, he's calling it a levy. Uh, And that money, instead, uh, when you buy your big gas-guzzling car, your uh, SUV or your truck, and you pay your carbon tax, uh, or levy, whatever it is, instead of it going to the federal government black hole, it goes into like a credit for you, like a TFSA thing. And, and that builds and, and, and then you get to use that. I guess, for example, if you, after buying your gas guzzling truck in five years, you realize you want an EV, then you can use that money towards that EV. Your thoughts on these two and, and is one different than the other? Or is it all just a shell game?
3: It took you two minutes to explain the uh, O'Toole plan, and I think that's part of the problem with it, is that it's...
0: Yeah, but at least, I don't even get the other ones, Peter. I don't, like, I could never figure out cap-and-trade, and and even the carbon tax. You don't know where the money's going. At least this one, you kind of know where it's going.
3: Uh, I suppose. On the other hand, you know, as you're filling out your taxes, you notice that you get a carbon rebate. (laughs) So, you know, in a way... uh, isn't it better to
0: spend your but again nobody's really sure how much of a carbon rebate they get there's the gray area this you do and uh, at least uh, you know when i get this i have to spend it on green initiatives as opposed to whatever i want
3: well i mean we'll see if that sells i mean when i look at it i just think of bank charges and, and all the people in between who are somehow you know keeping track of how much money i'm spending on things and what the sort of gas tax part of that is and then how uh, that gets put into an account, and then I have to figure out what I'm allowed to buy of that account. And yeah, I I don't know if that's really going to give people a sense of kind of freedom, or a sense that they're contributing to you know investing in their ability to uh, you know make better choices in the future. Um, it might. Uh, I think for a lot of people, will be pretty convoluted, and uh, they'll begin to see all the people in between who are arranging you know where the money goes, uh, catch, getting their cut out of the the, the picture. So um i guess we'll wait and see how that goes but uh, to me it's a pretty convoluted way of you know engaging in in a carbon tax um you know in addition you know it's set at a level to get us to 30 percent below uh, our 2015 uh, levels by uh, 2030 so it's kind of based on this old uh, paris agreement but uh, the the point is that it won't go any further and so the question then is well what what's the next way that we Uh, you know, get closer to carbon zero if our plan is to get there for about 2050. So that's the next piece of the story, I guess, and then we have to ask from from Mr. O'Toole.
0: Peter Graff has been with us, Professor of Political Science McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too.